expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. In that speech of yours, give them plenty of the old uh, working your fingers to the bone stuff. Oh, and don't forget all that bunk about export or die. Export or die is no empty phrase. If we cannot sell the things we produce, we cannot buy the things we need. The results will be salvation. I wonder if there's anyone here who can put his hand on his heart and truly say, I am doing my best. The greatness of this old Turn country up, Charlie boy. has enough wind inside. Honesty, hard work, and a sense of duty. An ideal which many, I'm afraid, have rather lost sight of. To ensure this country's healthy trading intercourse with foreign markets, we must sell at the right price. What's he on about, Stan? To produce at the right price, then. Commercial intercourse with foreign. A of slackness. Demands greater efficiency. And everyone doing an honest day's work for a fair day's pay for a change. It means that we must be ready to work with our neighbors, irrespective of whether they share our beliefs or whether they belong to another union or to another race. Or the success of the firm is the success of us all. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 22nd, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to discuss a number of issues today, in fact. Hey, Robert, we've got quite an eclectic mix of subjects today, including commercial intercourse with foreigners, <laughs> which will wrap up the final quarter. No, we're not talking about Tim Hudak and foreign workers. We're talking about the closing of Ford. And uh, is it true what they say that free trade is anti-prosperity. That seems to be the labor view when you hear them talking. Other subjects we'll be approaching today. Ethical oil. Big fuss about that, eh, Robert? Yes, indeed. And uh, I'll be taking a look at uh, the new prohibition, tobacco. It just doesn't stop. Uh, there's another push on for, you know, more controls on where you can smoke, when you can smoke, how you can smoke. And I think they're all kind of misdirected. But first, I understand uh, you've got quite an interesting subject to kick off for us today. Well, I think it's interesting, especially if this bill passes. It's Bill C-10, the Conservatives' omnibus crime bill. Um, it It just made me think of conservatism and the hidden agenda of conservatives... And, uh, for example... Is it hidden, or is it right here in the crime bill? <laughs> it's right in front of you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, you, you don't get Sun TV, right? No, I'm Sun Network not. News, or Sun News Network. I don't get any uh, network. <laughs> I just discovered I have it on my, on my package. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You just <laughs> <laughs> But I don't even watch TV, but the other day, for some reason, I flicked it on. Hey, hey I get Sun TV, or Sun News Network, mm-hmm. uh, 517 on Star Choice. But um, I was watching it, and Brian Lilly's show... He lamented the fact that this country really has no truly conservative politicians. Now, he was talking in the fiscal sense, money matters, the economy. But uh, not to let that go, a number of people emailed him and uh, said, hey, what about the Freedom Party? Mm. And so he had Paul McGeever, the leader of the Freedom Party, on uh, the next day or the day after, I believe. And finally, he had to rescind his statement that there's no truly conservative or fiscally conservative parties in the 
in the province at least, because the Freedom Party certainly is. But that begs the question, is there a uh, another kind of conservatism in Canada? Of course there is. It's social conservatism. Or if you want to ask me, it's called anti-social conservatism when it comes <laughs> down to it. Now, this has come to be embodied in the Conservative Party of Canada under its leader, Stephen Harper, our current Prime Minister. And Mr. Harper's Conservatives are certainly not fiscally conservative. They're just not, judging by their past two terms in power, albeit with a minority. They are not fiscally conservative. Then now the next five years with a majority, I fear, will only reinforce the country's opinion of them as foolhardy tax-and-spend liberals, which they are. And while we can fault them for their overtaxing and overspending, we certainly cannot fault them not for not being socially conservative, although mm. I wish we could. You know, this week, Justice Minister Rob Nicholson... It's interesting because everyone was under the impression in his minority situation that he was really avoiding that social conservative label. I don't think he is. No? It's not now. No. Not now. I think that, that this new Bill C-10 is going to be the first... Um, example, I think, of his true social conservative streak because um, Justice Minister Rob Nicholson, uh, by the way, the same man personally responsible for incarcerating Mark Emery in the United States for selling cannabis seeds to Americans, he introduced an omnibus crime bill. Some of the provisions of the crime bill, by the way, is Bill C-10, I actually support. I'm coming down hard around uh, youths who commit violent crimes increasing jail time for certain offenses involving children and ending house arrest for perpetrators of violent crimes, I support. Allowing terrorist victims to sue terrorists and their supporters, I support. I've often thought that our uh, criminal justice system was soft when it came to sentencing violent criminals. But there are provisions in this bill which can only be described as chilling. Now, we've talked on this show before about the nature of conservatism and its desire to control people based on a conservative's unnatural sense of morality, a morality based primarily on mysticism, religion, and superstition. We've previously identified conservatives as being intrinsicists, people who believe that things are bad in and of themselves with little consideration given yeah, to reason, you know, science, or an individual's right to decide what is good for themselves without interference from Big Brother. You know, you know, when you say it that way, when you describe the process of what it is, I think a lot of people are wondering, what are you saying about that? You know, what does that mean to me? It's kind of philosophical, what, what a social conservative is. Mm -hmm. I think um, typically a social conservative might be someone seen in favor of harsher laws for social recreational activities, namely in the drug field, in field of censorship, in the field of thought control, so, you, know, it, you know, things like that, freedom of speech. And ironically, there's a bit of a mix there now, and people are getting kind of confused by some of those labels. Do they really stick anymore? I the think old after, label of social conservative? I think after Mr. Harper has his way with the country in the next few years, I think people will clearly know what a what it means to be a social conservative. It means know, that I, I was kind of hoping maybe there'd be a little bit of hope for this guy yet. Well, I, 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 I certainly hold out a little hope because uh, maybe he's just trying to play, placate the Alberta caucus of his uh, conservative party by uh, doing this omnibus crime bill, maybe. But still, it's going to have dramatic and uh, very, very dramatic and hard effects on a lot of people if this bill passes. Part of the crime bill calls for what I consider to be draconian prison terms for people who grow cannabis plants. If you have six or more, six to 200 plants actually, you're given an automatic six-month sentence. That's it, minimum, mandatory. Six-month sentence for growing six pot plants. That's beyond 
insanity. Now, get this, Bob. With an extra three months if it's done in a rental property or is deemed a public safety yeah, hazard. Yeah, I remember seeing that, yeah. <laughs> in other words, if the firefighters go in and say, oh, I don't like the smell of these pot plants, I'm going to have to put on a respirator, boom, you give it an extra three months right off the bat. And then if the landlord comes and says, oh, by the way, these premises are rented, oh, the, p- the penalty oh, yeah. goes up. As uh, if, you know, the exchange of money to a renter or to a mortgage banker is, uh, that makes a big difference. Changes you know? the nature of the crime, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you grow from 201 to 500 plants, mind you, that's a lot of plants. And I can understand what they're trying to resolve, but my goodness, this is not the way to do it. No, no. You get a minimum a year sentence or year and a half if it's a rental or poses a safety risk. The maximum sentence, no, the maximum sentence for growing any marijuana at all would double from 7 to 14 years in prison for growing a pot plant. These sentences are something I might expect from Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. I agree wholeheartedly. Where individual rights don't exist. Anybody who can even think like that is, don't let them in the room, don't let them around my kid, please. Yeah, yeah. Now, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, countries like that, dictatorships where individuals' rights don't exist, the state dictates what it considers to be moral, and this is exactly what Mr. Harper is proposing. Compare these sentences to the new sentences being proposed under the same bill for child sex crimes. Now, according to the province, which is a British Columbia newspaper, the pot grower who was caught growing 201 pot plants would receive a longer mandatory sentence quote, than someone who rapes a toddler or forces a five-year-old to have sex with an animal. The you know, pot grower gets more prison time than such a, Mark, such a person. Mark Emery said the same thing here in London before they hauled him off to jail, because he's not supposed to be saying these things, that, that people who are busted for pot lose their kids, lose their houses, lose their families, whereas child molesters do not, murderers do not, rapists do not. Yep. All the worst heinous crimes in the country do not suffer the same consequences as someone who smokes pot or grows pot it's it's oh my goodness i i I wonder what rock did these people crawl up under how are they crawling around in in our public do they not understand what they're doing do not understand the consequences of these insane laws this is another quote from the province quote a pedophile who gets a child to watch pornography with him or a pervert exposing himself to kids at playground would receive a minimum 90-day sentence half the term of a man convicted of growing six pot plants in his own house. Yeah. Well, the 14 shows year... you what's important to conservatives, That's doesn't right. it? That's uh-huh. right. The 14-year maximum sentence for growing pot is, quote, the same maximum applied to someone using a weapon during a child rape and four years more than someone sexually assaulting a kid without using a weapon. This contempt, Bob, for Stephen Harper has and his socially conservative Neanderthals have for the pot plant and for the literally millions of Canadians who have or do smoke pot is enormous. Stephen Harper would obviously prefer you rape a child than grow a pot plant. A little harsh, you might think? I don't. Well, how else do you explain those those sentences? Those, exactly. Those, those proposals. There's not no other way to, to uh, explain them. You know, he'll say, well, we're trying to placate the United States, you know? Yeah. That's another thing he constantly says. That's, that's I think that is a big part of it as well. Of course. You know, you don't want to... You don't want to upset the United States. Now, as we speak, Mark Emery has three years to go on a five-year prison term in the U.S. after the Harper government turned him over to the DEA, who came to Canada and arrested him on Canadian soil for selling pot seeds, something which is punishable by only a small fine in this country. Also in the crime bill are provisions which tug at the very threads of justice that has protected the innocent from an overpowering state. 
I'm going to get off the pot issue for a moment because now we're going to be talking about terrorism. The crime bill proposes to allow the police to detain terrorism suspects for up to three days without charges. It'll also allow judges to jail witnesses who won't testify about what they know of terrorism. Now, what can be so bad about these new powers we give to the police and the courts, you might ask? The problem is that giving the police and courts more power for one cause opens the door to giving them power for any cause. Today, you might be jailed for failing to testify what you know about your neighbor's possible terrorist activities, and tomorrow, you'll be jailed for not testifying what you know about your neighbor's pot-growing activities. Exactly. It'll only require a slight change in the wording in the legislation. You know, it's a slippery slope Mr. Harper will create when he seeks to curtail our rights, no matter how noble he believes the reason to be. You call that a slippery slope? I say that we slid down the sl- slide already and ended up on yeah. our butts at the bottom. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much we're there. We're past the slippery slope. Yeah, especially since we have five more years of Mr. Harper well, in that control. Do you really think he's serious? Is he just floating this to make sure it doesn't work? Maybe he wants it to fail. No, no. This bill yeah. will pass. I have no doubt about it. I this bill will pass. Okay. He's got a majority in the House. It's going to pass. As a matter of fact, he wants to rush it through. Now, by rushing, of course, it's only gotten the first reading, but he wants it done in 100 days because he's promised it to the people out there. Oh, that was high <laughs> on my list. I remember that. Oh, one. Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. I know why I didn't vote in the last federal election. <laughs> Catching terrorists by eroding our rights not to be arbitrarily detained by the police or not to be compelled to testify only proves that the terrorists are winning. If their goal, the terrorist goal, is to destabilize our freedoms and change this country into one they're familiar with, a despotic autocracy, and if Prime Minister Harper gives in to their demands and strips away our rights and freedoms, then he'll be hailed as a hero by the terrorists and a villain by people like you and I, Bob, peace-loving Canadians. That's what's happening out there with this crime bill. Well said, Robert. Can't say much more to that. Yeah. So we're going to go for a little break here now. And uh, this little clip I pulled from, uh, what was the name of the show again? Peter O'Toole in The Ruling Class. An absolutely chilling uh, black comedy drama, I guess you could call it that. Unfortunately, this is a particular case where art imitates life. Yeah. Exactly. So we'll be back right after this. My lords, my lords. I wish to call attention to the grave disquiet throughout the country at the increase of immorality. My lords, my lords, I must support the noble lord. For 13 years there has been no flogging, no hanging, and a steadily rising volume of crime, lawlessness, and thuggery. I believe that the sissy treatment of young thugs is utterly wrong. My lords, we must step up the penalties by making hanging and flogging the punishment for certain state crimes. The criminal must be treated as an animal. My lords, I have doubts about speaking here, but after what I've heard, I realize this is where I belong. My lords, these are grave times, killing times, SARS collapse, universes shrink daily, but the natural order is still crime, guilt, punishment. There's no love without fear. By his hand, sword, pike and grappling hook, 
punish my noble lords. The strong must manipulate the weak. That's the first law of the universe. The hard survive, the soft quickly turn to corruption. This is a call to greatness. Approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. I will recompense them according to their ways and their abominations that are in the midst of them. And they shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth. You're one of us at last. Well done, Jack. A proposal to ban the possession of tobacco by anyone under 19 years of age is drawing some strong reaction. As Casey Colby reports, the idea comes from a political action group opposing the contraband tobacco trade. Matt is 18 years old. In Ontario, it's illegal for him to buy cigarettes, but he says he never has a problem getting his hands on them. Uh, I think they get it from their older friends, maybe their parents, maybe kids at school. According to statistics, 85% of smokers start before their 19th birthday. The national campaign against contraband tobacco wants the federal government to make it illegal for anyone under 19 to be in possession of tobacco. It's a controversial idea that gets strong reactions. I don't think it should be done. I think it's ridiculous. Yes, I do. Stop legislating what goes on in people's lives. And I reiterate that sentiment. <laughs> you know, where there's smoke, there's always Big Brother, eh, hey, Robert? Yes, indeed. And um, don't panic about that clip you just heard. That's actually a two-year-old clip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> two years almost to the day. It was uh, September 23rd, 2009, and today's the 22nd. So it must be that time of year when all the propagandists, the anti-smoking propagandists, come out of the woodwork. Because if you saw the front page headline of the September... London Free Press, September 15th, sorry, big headline. Oh, no, you don't, as there's a person sitting there just about to light up a cigarette on the front page. Eh? And uh, it was over the article by Jonathan Scherer, in which he reports, quote, the region's medical officer of health, Graham Paula, wants to extend smoking restrictions outdoors and hopes to have a bylaw before London City Council early in 2012. His priorities include playgrounds and sports fields because of the presence of children and outside doorways to public and commercial buildings. Quote, smoking is the leading preventable cause of death in Ontario. This is a very important initiative for us, Paulette said. Paulette went to the health board with a loaded deck of arguments. Quote, research shows non-smokers can be exposed outdoors to levels of secondhand smoke as high or higher than in indoor spaces where smoking is restricted. Isn't that brilliant, Robert? Did you know that they had research that the 
told them that if you go into a place where there's smoke, you'll have more exposure to smoke than if you go to a place where there's no smoke, you'll have wow. less. Really? Wonder how many billions they spent on that one. <laughs> the accumulation of dangerous carcinogens is re- in relatively confined areas, including entranceways and patios, is particularly concerning. Hmm. Did they do a study on their concern or on the carcinogens in the, back, in the hallway? I can't believe this, you know. Each year in Canada, 1,000 non-smokers die, and many more get ill from secondhand smoke. Or another one, children and young adults often copy behaviors they see. So smoking in outdoor public places, listen to this, promotes tobacco use. You know what that means? That means they're gonna, you're actually going to be, you could be charged with promoting tobacco use for being seen smoking it in public. Right? You know something, when the day comes that tobacco is outlawed outright, which will happen, you're absolutely right. People are going to be spending time in prison for having a, a smoke outside. You know, I, I can't ever see it getting that bad, but I can see people wanting it to get that, that bad. And then finally, a poll of local residents found nearly all favored restrictions on outdoor smoking, end quote. Now, here's the funny part. I do too, Robert. I also favor restrictions on outdoor smoking. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But for none of the reasons that were described above, you know, n- none of those things. So, you know, out of the blue, a couple of days after this article appeared, I got a call from, believe it or not, Ian Gillespie of the London Free Press. He's asking me to comment on the issue. And we had a very interesting conversation that went on for quite a few minutes. But before I get into that, I understand we have a call on the line. Is that correct? Oh, let's listen to the caller first before I get going. Hello, caller. Hi, how's it going? Not too bad. Um, I I wanted to comment on the government's crackdown of illegal tobacco uh, and also about trying to uh, make it illegal for anyone under 19 to possess it. The reason why they want to crack down on uh, the illegal sale of tobacco is because they want to be the only ones that profit off of selling a product that harms people. Of course, it's a a monopoly. They're basically saying that we're the only ones that are going to make money off of it and they don't want uh, anyone under 19 uh, possessing tobacco because the money they spend on it is not going to them. Correct. You got it right. Totally agree. Yep, totally agree. And, um, you know, that's true of all drug prohibition. Somebody's, you know, getting a monopoly on it. And in the case of even illicit drugs, the people who are most in favor of prohibition, guess who? The godfathers, the people who are, who are at the top, they're the ones that want to. But anyways, I get this call from Ian Gillespie to ask me a comment on this issue. And uh, so, you know, a couple days later, lo and behold, a few days after that original article, the second article appears. I finally see a headline that seems to echo my feelings and, and my response on the subject. So on page A2 of the September 19th Free Press by Ian Gillespie, there's a headline, Smoking Bans Have Gone Far Enough, it says. And they're in that article by Ian. There's a quote by me with my name in the byline, which I thought was rather surprising. Now, I have to say that between the two of us, this article contained just about everything you could really say on the subject, Robert. This was a very well-written article. And and Ian went further than I did, which was really what surprised me. And he had an incredibly profound and insightful conclusion to his article that must have come out of our conversation. I don't really remember everything we talked about because um, I don't even remember, I didn't write down any details of our conversation, but as I saw his conclusions, I started remembering some of the details and maybe why he, he went to these conclusions. But uh, this is uh, just from his September 19th column, and he talks about, he says, uh, 
You call me crazy, but, uh, you know, he thinks that you should be hiding your potato chips because, you know, they're bad for you because that's his reaction to the uh, Middlesex London Health Unit wanting to ban smoking in outdoor public places. Now, he makes a point, like like me and you and, and himself, none of us smoke cigarettes, you know. It's not an issue for us in that sense. And he says, I'm not one of those conspiracy kooks who believes 9-11 was an inside job. We did a show on that, didn't we? We never sent astronauts to the moon, and research linking cigarettes to cancer is nothing but smoke and mirrors. But this latest push to restrict another legal activity makes me nervous. And he talks about the fact that he doesn't doubt for a second that cigarettes are risky, etc., etc. Um, but he says we've got a problem here. There is an issue. And we have another caller, and I think uh, this caller is in reaction to the last caller. Let's have him on. Or her. Who is it? Hello. Hi there. Hello. Um, yeah, uh, my name's Jeremy. Uh, the last caller said uh, uh, the government wants to control uh, cigarettes so they can have a monopoly. That isn't accurate. They actually want to control the price of cigarettes because that determines how many people smoke. The higher the price of cigarettes is, the less people will smoke. True, but you control prices by controlling the market, and that's always kind of considered a monopoly situation when you're interfering with legislation in any form of the mar market. It's not to say one person is selling cigarettes. I wasn't suggesting that. But uh, you couldn't go and just set up your own cigarette shop on your own without getting that government's permission and selling at the prices that they tell you to sell. The, the, the beer monopoly works the same way. The liquor monopoly works the same way. There are private beer stores, but they have to sell at the prices the government tells them. So it ends up being the same thing. But the caller is making a valid yeah. point in that they are raising the prices, um, overinflating the prices so, to, on the guise of uh, having people stop smoking. That's what, he, that's what you're saying, right, caller? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, you're right about that. Yeah, and, and what happens is the more you do that, the more you get, get a black market. Yeah. Uh, I would say there's as big a black market in tobacco as there is in marijuana. Has well, it's true. Be. Prohibition always does that. And, so uh, whether it's done by prohibition directly or through high prices, really maybe what we might be calling these high, higher and controlled prices isn't monopoly but prohibition of a sort. That might be well, almost, absolutely. I mean, it is a controlled substance, and they're using the price to help control the substance. Yes, that's yes. right. But it, but it's not like it's not just a revenue grab. I mean, the, the way the last caller said it, all well, it was is a revenue grab for the the government, which isn't true. Well, that might not be their justification, but let's face it, it is a revenue grab. Well, uh, they are charging taxes on this product that are much higher than they would be on a normal sales tax product. So clearly, they're they're you know, sort of. Uh, uh, discriminating against this particular product, which is great. But to me, the idea of controlling the substance was always, you know, legitimately to keep it out of the hands of kids and keep it out of the hands of certain segments of the market, not to control prices, I don't think. Um, yes, that's exactly my argument. Was okay, right. terrific. Yeah. Thanks for the call. So, uh, this seems to get a lot of people going. This well, you know something? Subject. Smoking is an extremely addictive habit. It's an extremely no. dangerous habit. But you know what I would say? A truly free country out there is, would do exactly what you said, Bob. Any tobacco grower can sell his tobacco without government interference for whatever price he wants to because the consumer knows the risks. Of course. And, boy, are they ever labeled loudly and clearly on every package, aren't they? <laughs> yes. I mean, if that doesn't slow somebody down, nothing's going to work. And, you know, Ian Gillespie, what I was amazed at, what he took from away from our conversation, he says the crux of his concern was that if we really wanted to do this, and that is to control smoking in public, he says there's an easier way. And he actually referred to my idea. 
And he quotes me, it's not a health care issue, says Freedom Party President Robert Metz. It's a property rights issue. And that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's the owner of the property should, who should have the right to say what goes on in that property. And here he describes something that I'd never heard described so well about me. Quote, as Metz sees it, the corporate city of London owns the streets and sidewalks. And if the city wants to block certain activities from occurring on its property, then it can and should do so with the laws already in place. Well put. Yeah, I agree. That, that's, yeah. that's a very well put uh, statement. And then, he's, then he quotes me saying, increasingly, our health care units and doctors and workers are becoming politicians, but it's not their business and they're far exceeding their legitimate authority in a free society. Metz calls this sort of meddling health care fascism, concludes uh, Ian, and he says, I wouldn't go that far. But I do fear that more and more we're forgetting that we live in a world of diversity and choice and we need to accommodate individual preferences, not condemn them as moral failings and turn them into crimes. What a, an amazing ending. That, that, that just... No, Ian Gillespie's got a right really on with that. That was a really good conclusion. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was thinking, we had a part of our conversation, we were talking about people that we were aware of, I think some Hollywood stars too, who had died of lung cancer. And a lot of people kept assuming that these people were smokers when indeed they were not. And I think one was the wife of Christopher Reeves, too, who died. She died of uh, lung cancer. And she had to constantly tell people, no, I don't smoke. And more than half people who get lung cancer don't smoke. Okay, so this, this is just, and, and they, get, they get marginalized, you know, just mm. because of that. So that's part of our health care system, trying to criminalize and make you feel guilty about getting sick. Right, <laughs> that's really what's a lot of what's going on. And it's your fault, and then they can say later, "Well, we're not going to take care of you." You know, that's all part of, uh, and this is also part of what we talked about last week—the uh, whole concept of preventing, preventing, preventing. Right, which is wise in, in an individual level, but not good policy for governments, unless, of course, they're totally committed to paying for every cent of your health care, which they haven't got any choice to do. Then, that's why we're in the mess we're in now. Anyways, let's leave this subject for now. I think we've said enough on that. What's the next one we're talking about on the other side? Something about ethical oil, is that right? Ethical oil, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, when we come back after this break, ethical. There's no need to be insulting just because you're wrestling with an unhealthy and disgusting habit. It isn't disgusting, it's wonderful. Now, baby, tell me, what is so wonderful about smoking? Everything. I like the way of... Fresh, firm pack feels in my hand. I like peeling away that little piece of cellophane and seeing a twinkle in the light. I like coaxing that first sweet cylinder out of its hiding place and bringing it slowly up to my lips, striking a match, watching it burst into a perfect little flame and knowing that soon that flame will be inside me. I love the first puff. Pulling it into my lungs, little fingers of smoke filling me, caressing me, feeling that warmth penetrate deeper and deeper till I think I'm going to burst then. Watching it flow out of me in a lovely, sinuous cloud. No two ever quite the same. More potatoes, everyone.
fact. Last year, we bought over 400 million barrels of oil from Saudi Arabia. We bankrolled a state that doesn't allow women to drive, doesn't allow them to leave their homes or work without their male guardian's permission, and a state where a woman's testimony only counts for a half of a man's. Why are we paying their bills and funding their oppression? Today, there's a better way. Ethical oil from Canada's oil sands. Ethical oil, a choice we have to make. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And no, that wasn't an ad put on by CHRW. That was actually part of our clips to introduce our next subject, which is about <laughs> ethical oil. But before we get on to that, um, you can go to our website and look up all of our past shows at justrightmedia.org. You can also send us an email, feedback at justrightmedia.org, if you'd like to add something to our show. We and they're all really... ethical shows, too. <laughs> we think so, <laughs> that's for sure. Though I'm sure some people might disagree. So, as I was saying, that was ethicaloil.org's commercial asking us to support Alberta oil sands over Saudi oil. Why? Because the Saudis won't let women drive, apparently. The Saudis won't allow women to work, you know. In Saudi Arabia, a woman's testimony is worth only half that of a man's. Well, guess what? hundred years ago here in Canada, women couldn't drive. Mind you, cars didn't exist, so that wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to make light of this, by the way. <laughs> Never thought of that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hundred years ago in Canada, women had to be clothed in such a way as to not show any skin. That's a fact. It was the mores of the time. hundred years ago, women were not allowed to vote here in this country, and a few, uh, very few worked, as work was a man's responsibility. They were not even considered women, and, or people, pe pe or persons, persons, until the 1920s. And we're talking about Canada, liberal mm -hmm. democracy Canada. Canada, however, has matured since then and become civilized. It's evolved into a country which respects, to some degree, especially after our first segment here, I have doubts about it, but respects a person's individual rights. Now, if Saudi Arabia's faults were only their treatment of women as children, then the thrust of Ethical Oil's ad is very weak, I think. What Ethical Oil should have exposed to the light of day were the many other violations of civility that Saudi Arabia is guilty of. Saudi Arabia has only been around as a nation-state for about 79 years. Its ruling family, the House of Saud, has its roots in murder and thievery. Abdulaziz bin Saud, the patriarch of the royal family, uh, patriarch of the royal family, earned his kingdom by murdering, opposing tribes, and stealing their wealth. But does that distinguish him from anyone else? That's what I was just about to say, Bob. <laughs> that is the history, yeah. and even our own monarch's family tree is replete with bloodshed and sure. war. No doubt about it. As a matter of fact, you don't get to be king unless you're bloodthirsty and ruthless. Well, we mentioned. Mind that. you, this is only like eighty years ago. Sure. <laughs> Not like in the British monarchy, where you may have to go back several hundreds of years before you find a king actually having a sword in his hand. But anyway, however, today Saudi Arabia is no better than its past, in my estimation. In fact, I think it's even more bloodthirsty and cruel. The ethical oil ad, when it says that women aren't allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, sort of gives us the impression that if a woman's pulled over by a cop there, she could get a ticket or maybe a ride home, you know. Hmm. Not so. If a woman is found driving a car, she could be pulled from the car by a gang of government-sanctioned thugs called the Mutaween and beaten to death. That's what this ad should have said. 
Not just that they can't drive, but they could be bludgeoned and murdered to death for doing so. This is a government bureaucracy. There is a government bureaucracy in Saudi Arabia called the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. Sounds like a Stephen Harper type of committee, to tell you the truth. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, now, agents of this committee are called the, the Mutaween, or the religion police. The Saudi Mutaween are charged with enforcing the official religion of Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi Islam. Their job is to enforce Sharia law. They patrol the streets enforcing dress codes, strict separation of men and women, prayer by Muslims during prayer times, and other behavior it believes to be commanded by Islam. They arm themselves with thin wooden canes. The duties of the Mutawin include, but are not restricted to, the following. Ensuring that drugs and alcohol are not being traded. Again, sounds like Stephen Harper there for a bit. Mm -hmm. Checking that women wear the abaya, a traditional all-enveloping black cloak. Now there they might have a disagreement. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Stephen Herbert's not all yeah. that bad. Making sure that men and women who are spotted together in public are related. They also have the power to arrest anyone engaged in homosexual acts, prostitution, fornication, or proselytizing of non-Muslim religions. They can enforce Muslim dietary laws, such as the pro pro prohibition from eating pork, and store closures during the prayer time. They prohibit the consumption or sale of alcoholic beverages and seize banned consumer products. Boy, this does sound a lot like our government here, doesn't it? Uh, it's, seize it's, uh, banned consumer products and media regarding... Uh, me out here. <laughs> <laughs> regarding contrary to Islamic morals. They also actively prevent the religious practices of other religions within Saudi Arabia. Punishment in Saudi Arabia is swift and brutal. The Mutawin can beat you to death on the spot for infractions against Sharia. If found guilty of crimes in a court punishment, they may range from caning to the cutting off of hands to death by hanging or public decapitation with a sword in a public square. This is from uh, Wikipedia. Now I'm going to quote here, giving some examples of the brutality of this particular regime that we trade openly with. Quote, in May 2007, a man alleged to have alcohol in his home was reported by Arab News to have been arrested and beaten to death by CPVPV members. That is the committee acronym. The father of the deceased said that commission members continued to beat his handcuffed son even though he was already covered in blood until he died. In August 2008, a young Saudi woman who had converted to Christianity reportedly was burnt to death after having her tongue cut out by her father, a member of the committee. April 5th, 2006, a Catholic priest, Father George Joshua, had just celebrated Mass in a private house when seven, uh, seven religious policemen, Muto, uh, Mutawa, broke into the house together with two ordinary policemen. The police arrested the priest and another person. And this one one of the most widely criticized examples of Mutawin enforcement of Sharia law came in March 2002 when 14 young girls died of burns or smoke as asphyxiation by an accidental fire that engulfed their public school in Mecca. According to the statements of parents, firemen, and the regular police forces present at the scene, the religious police forcibly prevented the girls from escaping the burning school by locking the doors of the school from the outside and barring firemen from entering the school to save the girls. 
beating some of the girls and civil defense personnel in the process. Mutuin would not allow the girls to escape or to be saved because they were not properly covered, and the Mutuin did not want physical contact to take place between the girls and the civil defense forces for fear of sexual enticement. Wow. That's what I have to say. Wow. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia is an absolute dictator. Unlike the monarchs of more civilized countries where they are mere figureheads, Abdullah's word is law. Saudi Arabia is perhaps the second most oppressive and despotic regime on the face of the planet but for North Korea. Members of the Saud family have been indicted for drug trafficking. And when a Saudi royal traffics drugs, we're talking about shipping two tons of Colombian cocaine to France aboard their private 727 jet. These are the guys that are controlling the drug trade and everything, and that's why we have to live with the laws we live with and with all the consequences we live with, because these guys cooperate with our governments, and our governments cooperate with them. You got it, Bob. The kingdom is being sued by Lloyds of London for their alleged role in funding al-Qaeda and making the attacks of 9-11 possible. It's been alleged that members of the royal family knew Muhammad Atta, one of the Saudi nationals who participated in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. These members of the family fled the U.S. only two weeks before 9-11. The kingdom is the second biggest military spender per capita behind Oman. Why are they our ally? Why do we even trade with such a regime? Why aren't these despots hunted down under the UN's responsibility to protect provision, the reason we're in Libya, by the way, and brought to trial for their barbarism? Oil, of course, and the military spending that they have. Saudi Arabia has the largest reserve of easily accessed oil in the world. By the way, oil which was discovered by American oil giants Texaco and Exxon, the Saudi government in the 1950s effectively nationalized the Saudi branches of these American companies with the help, by the way, of the U.S. government. Yeah, basically stole it from them. Stole it, yeah. Mm -hmm. The ads by ethicaloil.org do not go far enough. They're tame and timid and do not do justice to the atrocities perpetrated by the Saudi dictatorship. And yet, the Saudi government has the nerve to send a cease and desist letter to the Television Bureau of Canada. Unbelievable. <laughs> Bell Canada, owner of CTV, has capitulated to the Saudi threat, probably in fear of losing their lucrative Saudi business, which amounts apparently to billions of dollars. Sun News Network, on the other hand, true to form, has continued to air the ads and has called on the Prime Minister to call in the Saudi ambassador over the threat to free speech. It's the least he can do. What Prime Minister Harper, as well as the rest of the free and civilized world, should do is ostracize this regime. Totally. Stop buying their stolen oil, prevent them from spreading their hateful Wahhabism by blockading the country and preventing any one of their citizens from emigrating. They should be shunned and condemned for their medieval political ideology. Why we continue to have truck and trade with these dictators belies our own tenuous understanding of what it means to be free. Yep, pretty scary stuff. And with that particularly bleak outlook of our yeah. ally Saudi Arabia, could we're going to take. Yeah, we could <laughs> we could use a smile. So here's a little bit of comedy to lighten your day. So I was listening to George Bush today. You guys like George? No? Yes? No? I like George. You know what I like about George Bush? He makes me feel like I could be president too. <laughs> oh, he does. 
the first guy, like, from my reading level, you know, like, the first guy, like, from my math class, to finally go out and do something. You know what I love about George? He can't say the word terror. He can't. He uses the word every speech. He can't say terror. He goes, tear. <laughs> That's what he says. He goes, America will not stand for tear. Anybody who supports tear, if you're a terrorist, we're going to get you. What kind of president goes, we're going to get you? He's... <laughs> He's like some redneck they dragged out of a barbecue, put him in a suit. Yo, just standing on stage going, we're going to get you. You should just be up there with a couple of bloodhounds going, go get him, Blue. Smell the shirt. Go get him. Damn, that Blue's a good dog. I'll tell you one thing I have realized, though. When you go to war, man, that's the one time when you really have to, like, appreciate rednecks, though. No, you know why? Because rednecks, they're, they're, like Amer they're like the one group of people that actually want to go to war. Everybody else tries to get out of it. Like, rich people never go to war. You ask a college kid if he wants to go to war, he's just like, um, I'm taking this sociology class, and I think war is, like, really stupid. My roommate's, like, half Afghanis, so that's going to cause some static. <laughs> you ask a redneck if he wants to go to war, he's just like, hell yeah! buddy I'm ready to do this no they're frightening people but you got to utilize them seriously you want to scare the enemy okay and rednecks are like America's pit bulls they should just sedate those people drop them off in Afghanistan just let them run wild just be like dude just go do everything you ever dreamed of doing just go crazy have one of your friends play the banjo it'll scare the hell out of them Seriously, you wouldn't want to draft a guy like me. I'm a comedian. I'm useless. I'm a coward. I don't like confrontations. You draft a redneck. Not only is that dude a psycho, he'll actually save you money. Those guys show up to the army like, here's your M16. They're like, I already got one. So anywho, I was taking the, uh, I don't know, you know the greatest thing about this job is I don't have a boss. That's what I love about this job. I never wanted a job where I had a boss. That's why I used to always work in like warehouses, because my boss gave me a rough time. I could just get on a forklift and just like drive away from him. <laughs> you know? And I realized I was too stupid to run a business. You know what I mean? I just knew I was never going to be that guy in like, you know, in the big office big long table going, we know we, in the fourth quarter, we need to increase, increase production, okay? Kathy, you're using a little bit too many paper clips and we need to just kind of tone that down, I'm not singling you out, we're just kind of, I could never do it. So I realized the only thing I could ever do, my greatest thing I could ever do was work in one of those cubicles. And I refuse to do it. Cubicles should be illegal, man. You know what a cubicle basically says? It basically says like, you know what? We don't think you're smart enough for an office, but we don't want you to look at anybody. So you're gonna get in there and you're gonna shut your face. <laughs> then you just get in there and you're like hunched over, typing away. Around lunchtime, you pop your head up like a gopher, like, hey, Steve, you wanna get a sandwich or something? I said, get in there and shut your face. I was, I was just asking for a sandwich or something. God, I hate that guy. I really hate that guy. It's time to go on the internet and look for a weapon.
Wow. I guess people behind the cubicles and on the lines uh, are no longer working at Ford's after last week. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of union activity of late, odd given the times. On the one hand, they're asking for more pay and benefits, as we just saw here at the university and at Fanshawe College. And on the other hand, they're being laid off, as we see in the situation with Ford's. Guess where the last Crown Vic that rolled off the Ford assembly plant in Talbotville was bound for? Where? Saudi Arabia. (laughs) I kid you not, Robert. Yeah. And with those words, you know, Mr. Lowenza of the union there was talking about how he's opposed to free trade. Apparently not with Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. but with the United States, of course, and with Mexico, and with countries that would compete with Ford. And this was the the interesting thing, you know, another casualty of free trade, writes the CAW in a full-page ad appearing in the Free Press on the 14th. And the ad laments the tragic closing of a highly profitable plant, Ford, in Talbotville. And that's true, it was profitable. And I'm not going to blame the workers there or their wages or anything like that for why that plant closed. It didn't have anything to do with any of those reasons, so don't even go there, okay? That's not really what it's about. But they did write that, uh, quote, Ford has the largest Canadian market share of any car company, despite, despite free trade, it seems, you know. Yet it's shuttering at this plant, badly damaging a community that can't afford another blow. Why? Because it can make more money manufacturing vehicles elsewhere, like Mexico. If auto pact rules were still prevailed, Ford couldn't shut this plant. Worse yet, it's the eighth major car or truck plant to close in Canada since 2001. Our whole country is, is being de-industrialized before our eyes. Yet the federal government wants more free trade deals, like with Europe and Korea, both of which could kill many thousands more jobs. Today, the CAW pays tribute to the men and women of Talbotville, and on behalf of these workers, we pledge to keep on fighting for good jobs, wages and pensions, fair trade policies, and a decent standard of living to benefit all Canadians. Together, we can win. What a fascinating statement for somebody to say on the way out the unemployment door. Isn't that kind of interesting? It Mm. it never stops, does it? The rah-rah. You know... um, Ford's reason for closing was nothing to do with labor there. It had to do with excess capacity. They actually have um, a, a more capacity than they need. And this was interesting because Ken Luenza says, and he says this on the radio, while he's trying to say that free trade is bad and, and that free trade is the reason that Ford's closing here, he continues to say Ontario is the number one car manufacturing center in North America. Quote, Ontario is still an incredible place to invest for the automotive industry. When you take a look at the kind of volumes that are coming out of a lesser plant today, one thing that's happening in Oshawa, Oakville, and Windsor is that as a result of technology, as a result of significant investment, that's called capital, you can build 350 to 400,000 vehicles under one roof, which wasn't the case 25 years ago. So we're manufacturing a lot more vehicles in Ontario, and that's good news. But each plant is still doing more as a result of the technology and the automation. So we still are a pretty good province for manufacturing automobiles, end quote. So basically, he's blaming free trade for losing the jobs, when in fact, the real reason is they're not keeping up with the rest of the technology and capital that's going on right in the province around them. The jobs aren't going to Mexico, they're going up to Oshawa, down to Windsor. That's not leaving the country. 
When did free trade you know, come in? It was under Mulroney, wasn't it, about 20 years yes, ago? Yes, and it wasn't why, even... Why doesn't he just blame the Boer War? Well, <laughs> still, you know, free trade it, it wasn't even really free trade. Free means free, free from government true. intervention. As long as you've got all these deals in place and all these regulations, how can you keep, even call it free trade? But, you know, here's what they're calling for. They want the government, quote, to have the determination to level the playing field. They don't believe in free trade. They want reciprocal trade, which doesn't even make sense. And he says you can't allow capital to move from one country to another. And if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have jobs. He just says, you know, that because of all this capital that's come into the country mm-hmm. to create all these jobs. And then the next sentence, he'll say we can't allow capital to move from one country to another. They want their you cake and eat it too. Constantly, constantly. And it's so embarrassing to listen to them talk like that. You wonder if they're five-year-olds it's or something. It's totally non-intellectual. It's scary. And, you know, I get... Whenever the radio starts a conversation on some job situation in town, who do they go to? The union the, bosses. The least informed people who could yeah. even tell you anything about it. The people on the receiving end of something. Why don't they go to the head of Ford and ask them what they're planning? I never hear that guy talking. Who is he? I don't even know. But I hear from the unions all the time. So we always hear in the media from the least informed parties to keep us updated on business developments. That just doesn't make sense to me. And they're always talking about job security, job security, right? Well, if you want job security, and if that's the issue, and it isn't really, you know, you could lower your wages, but that's not going to oh, no. trip it over, you know? And so it just goes on and on we've said so many times on this show that that unions are political organizations who happen to do a little collective bargaining on the side that's my way of looking at it right and because they have forced memberships making their authority kind of arbitrary and illegitimate because you have to join the union i don't even know that they speak with any authority not 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 that i would call real authority would you no as a matter of fact of the people who are electing them to collectively bargain for them um, don't even necessarily agree with their political statements or with their statements that they make to the public regarding plant closures. I think I was involved in a, mm-hmm. a negotiation drive, or not a negotiation, what do you call it, uh, where they wanted to uh, form a union here at the university, <coughs> oh, actually. Yes. And, a union uh, drive. <laughs> yeah, a union drive, yeah. And uh, we defeated it, actually, because um, the political values that the union, it was um, QP at the time, um, certainly did not mesh with the political values of every un- uh, member of the staff association who were asked to join the union. And I brought that um, point out at a meeting, and we, re- we rejected it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they did, ended up, after I left university, ended up getting unionized, but oh well, too bad for them. Well, I, I tell you, I just found it so ironic when I heard that the last crown Vic rolling off the assembly plant was headed for Saudi Arabia. Um, it was a good car. I drove a Crown Vic for a while. Mm-hmm. I remember your and Crown Vic. I enjoyed that car, and I moved from all sorts of cars back and forth. It was a boat, actually. <laughs> yeah. And, it's uh, a big car. But, man, you could handle it well. That was a good car. I drove I drove all my cars into the ground, <laughs> everyone I've ever oh, had. Oh, that's what I do, too. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, the union is opposed to free trade and insists a reciprocal trade should take place. So should these Fords have really been built in... Saudi Arabia and not here? Is that what he's saying? <laughs> no, he's saying that the tens of thousands of Ford uh, Crown Vicks that came off the line should have been bought by Canadians. Well, that would be ideal if there were that many Canadians to buy them, <laughs> yeah. and that's where he has the problem. Can you then, imagine? You if know, all we had to buy was the stuff that's actually made here? And, and I wouldn't have my Honda. I, well, actually, probably would, because I think they do manufacture it. I wouldn't have my Hyundai, which I have. You know, it's just nonsense. Mm. And, and the ideology that the unions push is so um, anti 
anti-business, anti, you know, healthy environment for business. You know, somebody who thinks just like the unions is U.S. President Barack Obama, who's proposing a $450 billion uh, program promoting American-only jobs. Mm-hmm. Oh, won't that be good for us? That should keep uh, the union reps south of the border happy, but what about our union reps up here? And then we see NDP leader Andrea Horwath showing up at the Ford funeral to throw her bit of fuel on the fire there, and she's talking about how the future of this province is we're going to push away, quote, from private deals, and we're going to turn to green, and she advocates renewable power under a public system. Now, this is even worse now. Now we're not just getting green, but you can't have green in private hands. You can bet she's just seething about all these farmers getting all these deals. She's going to take their property away from them. That's the next step in green. The people who, who even give in to this for a second. That's always, watched, that's always been the, the program. That's what happened to Ontario Hydro. All the private people who started that business and no longer have it, right? So that's the way it goes. So they want this public system, and that's, uh, you know, that's just where they're going. Anyway, that's my definition of hell. And that's where, that's where Horwath wants to go. And I wouldn't stop her, but I'm not going along with her. And that's it for this week, because we're going to take our own way out of here, and we're going to head in the right direction. And we'll see you next week when you join us again, we hope, on our next show. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. So- There's candle boxes stacked all around the house, and my dad has had it. He's like, are you two making any money on this? And we're like, no, we're selling them for church, Dad. And he says, yeah, and now you're going to learn something. Time for the Cation Game Show Moral Compromise. He says, okay, how much you selling them for? We say $3.50 each. He says, now you two are going to sell them for five. And that's how we learned how to skim off the top. He's got all kinds of advice, you know. He's got all kinds of advice about showbiz, and he says it's just like sales. You gotta make your opportunities, you gotta take your opportunities. You remember what Jesus said? You give a man a fish, that man knows where to come for fish. You teach a man to fish, and you've just destroyed your market base. (laughs) 